open the scriptures, I have one more thing I want to mention to you that's upcoming, and I want to get some seeds planted in your mind, uh, another uh, potentially new thing. As you look around you this morning, I think you would recognize that if we were to add the people that will be coming at the next service at 11, there will be probably 50 or so people there. If we would add them to this group, we would be full, and it's summertime, and people are away visiting. So we the reason that we are in two services is because we're too big for one service, even though there are occasions, especially if you come to service number two, that it may feel like, boy, we're not really big enough for two services. So what we are dealing with is a facility that we've known since we got into it that is passable. It's usable for what we're doing, but we need more, and we need a permanent presence. So we are currently in the process of trying to think that through and have been for months. So I have no vote to suggest to you today, or we would have done that already, but I want you to know in advance that you'll be hearing probably in the near future, in the next uh, month or so, month or two, uh, about an opportunity to build. We don't have a place picked out. We don't, I mean, we haven't made any offers on anything. Any opportunity to borrow money has to go to the church family just like to receive property. So I just want you to know that in the possible outside event that you would think, oh boy, we're taking on Deer Park, they're going to forget about us over here in Gloucester, that's not happening. We are in the process of thinking through where are we going to put and how are we going to design a permanent home for Coastal Community Church Gloucester. That's going to be super exciting. It's going to be really cool, and it's going to cost money. So I'm just <laughs> letting you know ahead of time, okay? It's, we're going to be taking a vote eventually uh, to borrow some money to put toward that, and we're also going to be asking you to think a little outside of your financial box, and uh, we'll be doing some fundraising for that. So I'm just planting the seed, okay? I know some of you are aware that we've been thinking about it. Some of you have talked to me about it. Uh, we have had a property we've kind of had our eyeballs on, but nothing has happened, and uh, we're just going to trust the Lord and follow those steps as we go. But anyway, that would be pretty exciting too. So I just want you to know, let you kind of let begin to ruminate and dream a little about that, uh, because we need a permanent place. I'm telling you, uh, just within the last probably six weeks, I had somebody come to me say, I came to visit this morning and I drove for 20 minutes up and down the road trying to find you, because it somehow is still not obvious to people who we are and that we're here. So uh, having a permanent home and a permanent location, other than telling people we're across from the Toyota dealership, I'd really rather have a different identity. Nothing against Toyotas, but... Um, next to the Chevy dealership. Next to the Chevy dealership. So, you know, you kind of have your choice of worship style or car dealership, I guess. But at any rate, uh, so let's uh, be prayerful about that as well, okay? God's doing some good things at Coastal. I want to talk this morning from... Uh, an incredibly powerful passage of scripture. I'm super excited uh, about this. And uh, it's, it's about Paul's passion and why Paul was so passionate. It's fascinating to me what people get passionate about. Uh, I mean, we all have kind of things that we really enjoy, that we really like. You know, we're, some people like golfing, some people like fishing, some people like shopping, some people like knitting. I mean, everybody likes things. And some people are really, really passionate. I'm like astonished that people will sit for like days outside of a convention center waiting for a political rally or even more surprised that people will camp for days waiting to spend a thousand dollars on the next iPhone. You know, I don't, the people are passionate about stuff. And, and it's, 
there's, there's sometimes no explaining our passion unless you have the passion, then you can explain it completely, right? I mean, if you want an iPhone double extra long and large or whatever they are, then you know why you need that, right? People are passionate about NASCAR or football or Downton Abbey. They're just people get things that they're super connected to. We either grew up in a family that was connected to that, or we married into it, or it's just something that has developed over time. Passion is vital. We've got to be passionate about something. People who are passionless, you you can just tell when there's nothing really that drives them to anything. People who are passionate set aside other things that they like to pursue their passions, Paul, in this passage of Scripture, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 11, is talking about his passion. Part of the argument and frustration that uh, people have voiced regarding Paul, these super apostles that have said, oh, don't follow him, has been, he's kind of half crazy. I mean, he's just weird. And is, it's, so there's this, this kind of ongoing sense of, Paul, there's something wrong with Paul. So he is spending a little bit of time here explaining his passion. And I think as we kind of tackle a couple of pretty big theological terms too, my hope is that you're going to leave with an even fuller appreciation for Christ who loved you and died for you. So He's talking first in verses, uh, the first several verses here, beginning in verse 11, about his motivation. It's really significant to know what motivates us. We can have poor motivation or good motivation. Paul wrote uh, in another letter in the New Testament that there were people who were preaching Christ out of envy because, or strife. They were just trying to get to Paul because he was in prison and couldn't preach. So they thought, oh, well, I'll go preach then and I'll, I'll make Paul feel bad. Or some were preaching out of goodwill. He said, for him, it didn't matter as long as the gospel was preached. But motivation is kind of important, right? Verse 11, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. Everybody said, oh, Paul, you know, he's, he's just not, he's not a a solid guy. You don't need to follow him. Look at us. We're rich. We're wealthy. We're well-trained. We're this, we're that. The other thing, you should be following us. And Paul said, these people are boasting about outward appearances. My motivation has to do with the fear of the Lord. So he's giving an explanation first. Why do I do what I do? Well, I know the fear of the Lord. I understand the fear of the Lord. If you were here last Sunday, we talked a little about the judgment seat of Christ, the the place at which we will all be made manifest, we'll all be kind of laid bare, and we'll understand what our works were like. Were they motivated by the glory of God, or were they motivated by self-interest? And if they were, in fact, motivated for the glory of God, they'll remain for God's glory. If they were motivated by self-interest, they'll just go away. They'll be burned up. So we know about the judgment seat of Christ, and he said, we just simply have a respect born from awe of the greatness of the Lord that causes us to be diligent in sharing with others. And he says, we've been open and honest with you. We've not tried to hide anything. We've not pretended to be something that we're not. 
We're simply being open and honest. Another new thing, by the way, in case you think I'm not noticing, don't, please don't get distracted. It's okay. Everything's fine. We got a new monitor back here that's supposed to help me and help our singers, and we're just trying to make it work. And okay, everybody took back here. See this? <laughs> now we're all good. We've all seen it, so don't even worry about it. I'm going to help you fill in your blanks. New stuff. Technology's great, right? I love it. Mostly. But it is not the fault of the people running it, generally speaking. All right? Are we good? Open and honest. God knows our motivation, right? There's no use in hiding it from him. What we are is known to God. He understands our heart. Paul's not concerned about trying to... uh, to hide or, or try to make appearances to other people, you should know us. We've been open and honest. You should be the ones able to answer these critics. We are who we are. We're not concerned about appearances. We are, however, passionate. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Paul recognizes that as people looked at him and observed him, it, was, it would be easy for, uh, for them to say, man, this guy's kind of wacko. He's, he's just too over the top. His passion has gotten the better of him. He said, if I act like I'm out of control, it's because I'm passionate. People who are passionate, as I said at the beginning, people who are passionate about something will set aside other things that are important in order to follow their passion. If they're passionate about NASCAR, they'll set aside some of their time to be able to go and watch the NASCAR races, or they'll set aside some of their time to put it on television to make sure it's what it needs to be. You've got to watch what you're trying to, to do so you have time to pursue your passion. If I act like I'm a few bricks short of a load, it's because I'm passionate. I'm just passionate about the things of the Lord. If I seem to be clearer and more collected, it's because I'm concerned for the church. Paul didn't care what people thought. He didn't care if people thought he was kind of nuts. He was passionate about the things of God, and yet he was focused with his passion. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I think this passage of scripture, by the way, is really central to the whole book, the whole letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians this second time around. He's talking about his compulsion here compulsivity is not always a good thing. Sometimes we're compulsive about things that we just simply don't need to be compulsive about. But here he says it's the love of Christ that compels us. It controls us. It's a a word describing pressure that produces activity, produces momentum, produces action. John MacArthur said the lavish free, unmerited love of Christ compelled Paul to serve him wholeheartedly as an act of grateful worship. The love of Christ, other versions have called it constrains me. It, it, 
it pressures me and funnels me in a certain direction so there be activity. The love of Christ, the substitution of Christ. We're going to come back around to this in a little bit. This is an incredibly important theological concept in Scripture. But I want you to notice what this says. One, we've concluded this in the middle of verse 14, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. This is called the substitutionary atonement. This is Christ doing for us in our place what we could never do for ourselves. The substitution of Christ is such that he did something as though I were the one doing it. The, the word is not just he did it for me as in, you know, that was nice, he did that for me, but he did it in place of me. He died in place of me, and so in that sense, he died as my representative. He died, I died with him in my position. If I've trusted in Christ, I died when he died And he died for all, verse 15 says, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for me so I should live for him. He died for me so that I have this correspondingly high obligation to follow after him. Selfishness is ruled out. That's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ. He died in my place so I should live for him. Substitution. So that's all about his motivation. That's why Paul acted the way he did. It's why he taught what he did because he understood the deep connection between what Christ accomplished for him and what he was going to do with his life as a result of that. Secondly, he talks about his ministry. This is, this is the ministry that Paul was called to. This is the ministry we are called to, to be part of. This is incredible. If I had to pick a few verses out of the Bible that I hope you would memorize and make your life verses, these would be among the list. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Transformation is the first part of our ministry. We we have this uh, incredible thing that happens when we are in Christ, when a person recognizes they're a sinner and they can't get to heaven on their own effort and merit and they, they uh, repent of their sin and they trust in Jesus who died for them and was buried and rose again on the third day, when that transaction takes place, we are, we are positionally placed in Christ. There are few phrases more central to your spiritual well-being than this one. And I I decided rather than try and give you an explanation of what it means to be in Christ, I'm just going to read you a handful of scripture verses that talk about it. This is what is true of you in Christ. He gave us grace 
in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 2 Timothy 1. Romans 8 says, I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 1, Paul said, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For as in Adam, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15. All those who are in Adam, which is all of us by birth, are dead spiritually. All of us who are in Christ are alive spiritually. All of that is true of us if we're in Christ, and it transforms us. It makes us new creatures. It makes us a different kind of person. So the old is gone, and the new has come. The old what? The old, the old values, the old ideas, the old plans, the old loves, the old desires, the things that drove me before no longer drive me. There's something new. They are, they're no longer in existence. Something new has come to stay. New desires, new loves, new inclinations. It doesn't mean I can't enjoy other things But there is one thing that is supreme now for me. It's my passion. And my passion is following after Jesus Christ. Being part of this ministry of transformation begins with my own transformation. And it's an ongoing process. And then a ministry of reconciliation. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The ministry of reconciliation. What is God doing? He's reconciling people to himself. He's taking people who have been estranged from him and he's bringing them back. Reconciliation, as we know it, is when two parties come back together. They reconcile, right? Because two parties have gone apart from each other. The difference with God is God hasn't gone anywhere. We're the ones who've gone. That's why the Bible always describes it as God reconciling us to him, not God and us being reconciled. God doesn't move. He doesn't need to. But he reconciles us. He does all the work 
to bring us back into a right relationship with him. This quote is really important, so I, I've had it put on the screen. Reconciliation is the divine act by which, on the basis of the death of Christ, God's holy displeasure against sinful man was appeased. The enmity between God and man was removed, and man was restored to proper relations with God. Reconciliation is not some polite ignoring or reduction of hostility, but rather it's total and objective removal. When you trust Christ, when you believe in the gospel and trust in Jesus as your only hope of salvation, God is no longer angry at your sin. God is holy. And because he's holy, he has a holy hatred of sin. Once I'm in Christ, that's all gone. He has reconciled me. It's, it's from a word for exchanging coins. Here's the, here's the cool part. When we believe in the gospel, we are placed in Christ, and we, we are now reconciled to God. It, we have something different than we used to have. We had God's wrath. Now we have God's pleasure. He continues to reconcile those who will come to him in faith. Verse 19, he was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses. We have a new message to carry. He made us ambassadors. We have a message to carry. We're pleading with people, get reconciled. The way it's worded is not, you know, this would be a really good idea for you. you need, this is get reconciled. Now get this done. We, we have a message that tells people, you're separated from God. You're estranged from God. There's nothing you can do to be pleasing in the sight of God. It's done. It's over with. You're, you're sunk. But it doesn't have to stay that way. If you'll trust in Jesus, God will reconcile you to himself. His, his wrath will be abated. What an incredible message. Verse 21, how did God do it? Verse 21 is, oh my word, I love this verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. First of all, he made him. Don't ever forget that this is all God's idea. From beginning to end, salvation, reconciliation, all these incredibly powerful terms are God's idea. God did this. And here's what he did. God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would believe. Jesus didn't become a sinner. He's God. He cannot sin. But legally, he took the responsibility for your sin. Legally, when Jesus died, God put on Jesus' account my sin. That's an incredible thing when I think about it. And that, that's just the first half, right? I mean, that's incredible enough because Jesus is, well, he's Jesus. God treated him as if he were a sinner. And now when I trust in Christ, when I believe in the gospel, now God treats me 
as if I'm righteous. I'm not righteous yet. In case there is any misconception about that on the part of your thinking of your pastor, my wife will be doing interviews at the end of the service. Um, None of us are actually righteous yet, correct? But when I trust in Christ, when I believe in the gospel, when I repent of my sin and trust in Jesus, God treats me as if I were righteous. He takes the righteousness of Christ and puts that on my account. What an incredible exchange. That word that word that I talked about before, it has to do with an exchange. Jesus took responsibility legally for my sin. I get the benefits legally of his righteousness. God declares me to be righteous because I'm in Christ. That's another 35-cent word called justification. God treats me. He makes a judicial decision to say, David Wilson is righteous because he's in Christ. It's not that I'm actually righteous. It's the judgment God makes because I'm in Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ on my account. Oh, man, that's incredible. So let me just give you three things to think about as we wrap it up. Have you been reconciled to God? If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ, you're hopeless. You have no hope of doing this. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You can't attend church long enough, even a good church like Coastal or some of the others that are around here that are really good gospel-preaching churches. You, you don't get to go to church often enough to be a Christian. You, you don't do enough good things. You don't give enough money to the right worthy causes. Nothing can change the fact that you have sin in your history. Even if you could start today and live perfectly the rest of your life, you still have sin in your history. God needs absolute perfection before he can permit you to come into heaven. You know that's not true. I know that's not true. And you know there's nothing you can do about it. That sounds super depressing. That's why the gospel's called good news. Because Jesus came and died on the cross and took legally upon himself, on his account, the responsibility for sin. So that when you believe in Christ, God can then take the righteousness of Christ and put that on your account. Now, when God looks at you, he sees you in Christ, and he says, ah, this one's righteous. He has the righteousness of Jesus. Now it's not about what you've done. It's about what Christ has done for you. So if you've never been reconciled to God, please don't continue being estranged from him. Consider everything that he did to make this possible for you. Secondly, What kind of ambassador are you? Because you notice it didn't say, therefore, we should be ambassadors for Christ, right? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul was uh, explaining his own activity as an ambassador of Jesus, but he, uh, he wasn't suggesting that that's something we should aspire to. He was saying we're ambassadors. So the question is, what kind of ambassador am I? Am I an ambassador that is really passionate about seeing other people come to understand the truth in Christ? Am I passionate about my relationship with him, my walk with him? And then the third thought as a question, how can you not 
be passionate and compelled to serve Christ. I look at passages like this. I started, I prepped this sermon probably two, three weeks ago. And man, I just felt like I had came to the end of my preparation and I just had to spend a little bit of time repenting of my lack of zeal, my lack of passion for the things of God. When I consider what God did in Christ to, to make me right with him again, how can I not be passionate about that? How can that not be something that just stirs up passion within me? Boy, I sure hope it does for you. I hope as you, as you think about what it is that God has accomplished on your behalf, I, I hope that you will recognize you are part of God's really significant ministry of reconciliation. You get to tell other people what God has done for you, and you get to tell them that he'll do the same thing for them if they'll trust in Christ, believe in the gospel, repent of their sin. What an incredible thing. Who's on your list? You still have your lead three or your, your reach three list around people that you're praying for, that you're looking for opportunities to share the gospel with them? I still have my list of people that I'm thinking about and praying for and have, have had opportunities, again, even not too long ago, uh, to talk to one of them. And I, I just... I'm praying for these people, and I hope you are. I hope you're looking. What are, what are the opportunities? How am I going to invest in this person's life in such a way that I can get the chance to share with them that they can be reconciled to God? What an incredible thing, right? Man, I hope that builds some passion in you. Uh, it's a little, a little hard to convey when you, when you get passionate in your own spirit, but uh, boy, I hope that the word of God will do that to you today as we go. We're going to sing another song here as we close. The, the team is going to come back. But I want you to know if you're here and you don't know for sure that you're a, a follower of Christ, you've never uh, uh, made a decision to follow after Jesus, you're not maybe certain what that really means, man, we would love to talk with you. We've got people who sit down with you and show you from the scriptures how you can know your sins are forgiven, you're on your way to heaven. And so... Man, I hope you'll come and talk to us after the service. Let us take care of that, help you get that squared away. It's an incredible thing. And I hope that as we sing, you'll just be thinking about, man, how am I going to go out of here this week demonstrating the passion that's in my heart for, because of what Jesus did for me? It's really incredible, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for Jesus. Thank you for the fact that he... I thank you for the fact that he took my place, that he stepped in and died the death that I should have died. I thank you that he took the responsibility for the penalty of my sin. And I thank you that I have his righteousness because I was willing to repent of my sin and trust in Jesus and believe in the gospel. So Father, I, I, I thank you that that's true for so many who are here this morning and with all of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I just lift up a heart of joy to you and gratitude. So Father, help us to be good ambassadors, passionate ambassadors for the things of Christ so that your name will be glorified and that more people will come to faith in Christ and that more glory will go to your name because of that. Thank you for your love for us.